A Britannia Airways 757 is doing a flight from Cardiff to Girona, and something unexpected happens when they land. What caused the flight to break up after trying to land? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. Hi. See, we got some patrons to thank. Yes. Lots. Thank you to our new patrons, Mandy, Angelica, Robin, and Jacqueline. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. You guys are awesome. We will send out merch soon. We do have to order more pins. Yep. We're down to two. <laughs> yes. So. It's so great. It's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have. So we will hopefully before we go away for three weeks, <laughs> we will send you your merch. <laughs> yeah. It it will happen here eventually. Yes. Listener stories. Okay. Listen, if it hasn't come out yet, it will. We got a lot. Yeah. And we're also really busy. We're yes. really busy. We're trying to like pre-record for when we're gone and we have to pre-record like I have to do an extra Miranda so next month and we have to figure out when we're all editing all this stuff and so yep. and we're traveling next weekend and Yep. So please be patient. We do realize that you sent in stories and you want to hear us read those stories and we will. It's just we have not had an open time because like Nick's gone for work or I have something I have to do at home or whatever. So, yep, it's I mean, I listed off everything I just have to do this week alone because it's also like crunch time at work for pretty much all of us (laughs) in some way, shape or form. And because of that. It was like I was thinking about just everything I have to do this week, and it's like my week's over, and it hasn't even started. Like it is completely full, beginning to end. Great. So, be please be patient. It will come out. It will hopefully come out before we leave for the cruise. So, yes. Again, please be patient. Patience. That's Anyth- all I got. Anything else? That's it. Okay. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Britannia Airways Flight Two Two Six A. Or Alpha. Thank you to our patron, Tyler, for recommending this. Thanks, Tyler. This, so last week was nice and short. (laughs) (laughs) This is not. This week is not going to be short. I have a lot of notes. This is going to be a nice long one. There's also a lot of pretty good findings and pretty good recommendations. The recommendations, there's not a whole lot of, but they're good. In the analysis, they're like, this. So we recommended something. So every time they do that, I'm like, and Nick's gonna cover that later. Yep, pretty much. So hopefully you cover all the ones I say that there are recommendations for. I hope so. Their recommendations are really good. So, I mean, there's only a couple that I skipped because it was like, "Mm, that doesn't really matter here, but most of them were like, no, this is actually pretty well thought out. Cool. This occurred on September 14th of 1999. This is a Boeing 757-200. We've talked about them before. This had the tail number Golf-Bravo-Yankee-Alpha-Golf. This was a flight from Cardiff in the UK to Girona in Spain. Which is in the northeastern part of Spain, kind of close to the border with France. And it is pronounced Girona, not Girona, because it is Catalan, not Spanish. Yes. The captain was a male... There were Brilliant. No, there were no names, but I had to do have everything else. He was male. He was 57 years old. He had 16,700 hours total, of which 3,562 hours were on the 757. Relatively experienced. I mean, pretty experienced overall. Relatively experienced on the 757. The first officer was male. 
He was 33 years old. He had 1,494 hours total. Not much. Of which 1,145 were on the 757. So he had a lot of hours on the 757. He had almost all of them, actually. The flight was operating a holiday or vacation charter. You know, most of the world calls it a holiday. We in the United States call it a vacation. Vacation, yeah. Yep. This is a holiday charter. This is really common in Europe, actually. Charters are really common in Europe for holiday operations. They call them charters. It's because these tour companies, basically, they sell all these vacation packages to people. And rather than book them on scheduled flights, they fill a whole flight with their tour of people. Yeah, I think we had that for the British Midlands flight, too, right? Yeah, it might have been. Also yeah, also the Mount Anubis flight, right? Erebus, Erebus, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were that doing was... a, a a tour, right? The... That was an actual tour flight. This one was just to get to the destination where the tour would be, but they so they sell it as a vacation thing. You know where it also occurred was Tenerife. The KLM flight had something like yeah, that the KLM it. was a charter for yeah. vacation. Yeah, you're correct. There's still quite a few airlines in Europe that actually do this. Jet 2, for example. Never Jet 2 heard of Holiday. it. They're, they're a UK airline that does just this. Basically, they sell vacation packages. People buy them. Then they send the airplane full of tourists to go wherever they're going. That was and your the, 200 bestest friends. Yep, exactly. Uh, in this case, 236. So this was, yeah, a holiday vacation charter for people to go from the UK down to Spain. In Cardiff, 236 passengers and nine crew boarded the flight. The flight also loaded an additional 15 minutes worth of fuel in case of holding due to weather over southern Europe, which called for scattered thunderstorms at Girona and all of their alternate airports. So already we know the weather is going to be not great. Iffy. The flight departed Cardiff at 8.40 p.m. local time. The captain was the pilot monitoring for this flight and the first officer was the pilot flying. The flight climbed to its cruising altitude and flew to the Girona area uneventfully. Just before descent, the first officer briefed on the ILS, or Instrument Landing System, approach for runway 20 at Girona. The flight began descending and contacted Girona ATC at 11.14 p.m. Local time in Spain. FYI, we've changed time zones, but that's local time. The flight crew requested the weather information for Girona at the time. It was reported as, quote, The wind is north 10 knots, pressure is 10.10, which is, in this case, is in millibars visibility five kilometers thunderstorm and rain scattered 1800 few 3500 cloud base temperature two zero dew point two zero so basically they're saying and that's in celsius so dew point and temperature when they line up it's raining brilliant yep that's what that means for all y'all who don't know what dew point is so the gist is they know that the weather's kind of rough but the cloud bases are actually relatively they're not super high but they're High enough. Visibility is decent. The air traffic control also informed them that there was a thunderstorm to the southwest of the airfield. So while there wasn't one directly over the airfield, there was one nearby. The air traffic controller then offered the instrument landing system approach to runway 20, but the crew had decided and informed the air traffic controller that they would like to land on runway 02 in consideration of the report of winds and wet runway tied with the fact that runway 20 was actually slightly downsloping. This was a good call. Yeah. Actually, based on the information they had, that wasn't a bad thing. Because wind's at 360, the runway would be at 02. Like, that's almost lined up so you would get a headwind. Right. Which you need when you're landing. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, they had all that information and they decided that that was going to be their best choice. 
They requested the VOR DME approach, which if you need a refresher on that, we've done several episodes on what a VOR DME is. But essentially, it is an instrument approach, but it's non-precision. So you use your instruments to get you to the runway. However, it doesn't get you to the center line, and it doesn't give you a direct glide slope. Yeah, you still have to be able to see the runway. Right. There is a glide slope, but it doesn't actually have a precision glide slope. Your altitude is based on how far out you are from the airport, which you know using your distance measuring equipment or DME. Right. Exactly. So it says when you're this far out, you should be at this altitude. Then when you get to this far out, you should be at this altitude. And you just kind of continue on that step function glide slope, I guess. Right. They're giving you the points along the glide slope, and it is up to you to determine that descent rate. Exactly. And so because this is a non-precision approach, it requires a lot more work. And there is no precision approach for runway 02, only for 20, the opposite end. So... That's what they're dealing with. They're having to do a lot more work to actually do this approach. Due to the change in workload, the pilots swapped roles. The captain became the pilot flying, while the first officer became the pilot monitoring. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to perform the VOR DME approach to runway 02, and the crew began preparing for the approach. The first officer asked the cabin crew to prepare the cabin for landing early in anticipation of the weather. He also advised the passengers in the cabin crew to expect heavy turbulence as they flew through the storm. The flight crew were able to see the thunderstorm on their weather radar to the west and southwest of the airfield. The aircraft descended and entered the approach path, entering the storm shortly thereafter. Around that time, the lead cabin attendant witnessed the left side of the aircraft get struck by lightning with no effect to the aircraft. This is normal. This was a and it, the 757 was developed to take a lightning strike. So, mind you, this wasn't a big deal, but it was of note that the cabin the lead cabin attendant was like in shock because the airplane lit up as it got struck on the left side. At 11.18 p.m. as the aircraft was 16 nautical miles from the Gulf Romeo November VOR, Drona VOR. Yes, thank you. Along the approach. So this is the, this VOR is literally along the middle of their approach path. The captain deployed the speed brakes to slow the aircraft down as it dealt with the storm. The aircraft flew over the GRN VOR at 11.22 p.m as they were descending through 7,200 feet. Crossing that VOR was the beginning of what was considered the final approach. Sort of. We'll get there. It's the beginning of that VOR DME approach. It's where their chart starts to give them the altitudes at the yes. distances. Correct. But this one required something special. The approach required the flight to do a descending right turn, 360-degree turn, at GRN, to overfly the, the exact same VOR again before continuing the approach to runway 02. That's weird. Yep. I wish I could see this on a chart. Yes, but there is a reason for that. What's the reason? Terrain and the approach path that they had chosen, they had to descend more. So this was the way to do it. Per the approach path, I mean, by that point, they needed to be at a certain altitude for GRN. Since they reached that path, that point already, they did a 360 degree to descend to the point where they needed to be. It probably just looks like a straight line, but if they're not at the altitude, then... Yeah, you have to do a circle. One minute after passing the GRN VOR the first time, as they were in the right turn, the captain's approach chart dislodged from its holder by the heavy turbulence. So suddenly he didn't have the approach chart in front of him. From that point on, he requested that the first officer read out the details as required along the approach. So the first officer was now going to have to read out the altitudes. Flaps 1 degree followed by flaps 5 degrees were subsequently selected during the turn. At 11.26 p.m., the flight passed over the GRN VOR again, 
but this time at 5,000 feet, so 2,200 feet lower. At 11.29 p.m., so about three minutes later, the aircraft leveled off at 3,400 feet. This is all above sea level, by the way. The air traffic controller then informed the crew of updated weather information at the airport, which read, quote, Visibility now is 4 kilometers, scattered at 1,500 and few at 3,000. Cloud base broken at 4,000 feet. The thunderstorm is now over the field. So, now the thunderstorm is at the airport. You can obviously see how that might be a problem, <laughs> since they are on approach. After receiving this information from ATC, the flight crew observed that they had 3,600 kilograms of fuel, and the minimum that was allowed for them to do an approach to the airport was 2,800, so they still had some, in order for them to do a missed approach and a diversion. The captain advised the first officer that in the event of a missed approach, that they would divert to their alternate airport, which was Barcelona. 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 This is actually not very far away from Barcelona at all, in actuality, in terms of like a map. This is not far. But to put in perspective, Barcelona is to their southwest. Right. Correct. Over the next bit of time, the first officer informed the captain three separate times that their speed was bug minus 10, quote unquote, meaning that they were 10 knots below their target speed for the approach. At 11.32 p.m., the aircraft established on the inbound 197 degree radial of the VOR at 10 DME. Okay, let's unpack that for a second to give some perspective on how the VOR DME works. The 197 degree is literally, it's inbound. So the VOR being the center point, mm -hmm. you would be flying at 197 degrees toward that VOR. Make sense? If there is a 360 degree sticking out of that VOR. Right. That, that VOR is the center on the hands on the clock. Okay. So around that radial... Somewhere on that is 197 degrees. Which is like roughly 7 o'clock-ish. Right, exactly. So from there, that's what you're flying inbound toward the center. Gotcha. The VOR being the center. That's gotcha. inbound. So they're on the 197 toward the center, toward the VOR. And they are currently at 10 DME, so 10 nautical miles from the VOR. However, gotcha. that's DME. So that's straight line from the antenna to... The VOR. The VOR, which when they're at an angle, it accounts for literally directly straight line wherever that is. Mm -hmm. So their over the ground might actually be shorter. The aircraft was now fully configured for landing with the landing gear down and flaps to 30 degrees and the speed brakes stowed. The landing checklist was completed by that time. At 11.33 p.m., the air traffic controller noted that there had been a change of wind to 200 degrees at 12 knots. So now it's the opposite direction. Now it's quite literally going 180 degrees the other direction. The air traffic controller subsequently offered the crew to turn right once reaching their minimum descent altitude, or MDA, and to enter a left pattern for runway 20. I know that sounds confusing. We've talked a little bit about this before. They're making a right turn on the approach, on the final approach. So they're coming straight in. They make a 90 degree right turn. Okay. That enters a left traffic pattern because that is all left turns from there to make the rest of the box. What? The runway's here. They're flying at it. They make okay. one right turn. The rest are going to be left uh, turns. Ha, ha, ha. So. In order to do left traffic, you're on the right side of the runway. In order to do right traffic, you're on the left side of the runway. So. You see how this might be confusing. So they overfly the runway, turn right. They wouldn't even overfly. When they reach MDA on the approach, oh, okay. they turn right. So they, would, the traffic so they would turn right and then turn north-ish. Yes. Parallel to the runway. Correct. And then turn left onto base, and then left would ha have them heading down runway 20. 
Correct. Yes. Good God. So the air traffic controller just offered them to, once they reach MDA, make the right turn and basically do a circle to land in a left pattern. At that time, the aircraft dipped below the clouds and the crew were able to make visual contact with the runway. The captain noticed that they were not stabilized on a good approach to runway 02 and that entering the pattern for runway 20 was also not ideal from their current position. The captain quickly made the decision to declare a missed approach at 11.36 p.m. The minimum altitude reached on this approach was 820 feet, just 351 feet above the airfield. The crew informed the air traffic controller of their decision to go missed following the missed approach procedure. The air traffic controller requested that the flight report when they reached the non-directional beacon, or NDB, of GRN at 5,000 feet. This is just basically a point out in space, away from the airport, along the path for 02, where they would eventually hold at 5,000 feet. It's on the opposite end of the runway, though. The crew then confirmed that they had 3,100 kilograms of fuel remaining, and the first officer noted a low-pressure caution indication for a forward fuel pump. This was normal, though. The low fuel level in the tanks is what caused this caution. Not abnormal at all. It's what they expected to see. But you might recall that they had said that at this point they would go to their alternate. They don't. At 11.37 p.m., the air traffic controller passed the weather information for Barcelona to them. This read... Winds 360 at 10 knots, scattered 3,000 feet, temperature 18 degrees Celsius, dew point 17 degrees Celsius, and basically the same pressure that they have in Girona. At 11.38 p.m., the crew had decided to attempt the ILS approach for runway 20. Much easier. And they subsequently notified the air traffic controller of this. There was a few things that played into this decision, primary of which was that the winds were directly down runway 20, and the ILS is a precision approach. Easier. Yep. Plus, they still had enough fuel. The air traffic controller cleared them for the instrument landing system approach to runway 20 and informed them that the winds at the time were at 190 at 15 knots. So still pretty close to right down the runway. The crew agreed that if the approach was unsuccessful, that they would divert to Barcelona after this approach. That was it. Which is easier now because they're actually pointing in the direction of Barcelona. Correct. They wouldn't have to turn around. Right. The FMS, or the flight management system, the computer in the aircraft, then generated an, quote, insufficient fuel, end quote, message, which the first officer advised the captain of and the captain acknowledged. This is the point when they hit that 2,800 kilograms of fuel. The flight then set up for the instrument landing system approach to runway 20 and captured the localizer. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually doing the approach yet, but the airplane's systems have caught the, data. Fre the frequency. And it now knows what to do. The captain then called for the weather radar to be switched off and to review the missed approach procedure. Just before the flight captured the glide slope, the captain noted that they were at 2,800 kilograms of fuel. The crew then reconfirmed that the captain was going to be the pilot flying for this final approach and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. At 11.45 p.m., the aircraft was now fully configured for landing on runway 20 with flaps at 30 degrees and the landing gear down. The air traffic controller cleared the flight for landing and advised the flight that the winds were now 150 at 9 knots. So now they have a little bit of a crosswind. But the winds have died down a little bit. At 11.46 p.m. and 32 seconds, the captain reported, quote, lights in sight, end quote, as the aircraft was at about 1,000 feet above sea level or 530 feet above the airfield. So he saw the lights of the airport at that point. At 11.46 p.m. and 47 seconds, the captain stated, quote, contact, end quote, and turned on the aircraft landing lights. The air traffic controller then subsequently reported having the aircraft in sight 
due to the landing lights, and informed them that the winds were now 150 at 6 knots, so now the winds have reduced again. Still a crosswind, though. Yeah, but it's small. Small, yes. Definitely manageable. At 11.46 p.m. and 58 seconds, the flight was stabilized on the glide path at 250 feet above the ground when the captain disconnected the autopilot and the autothrottle. At 11.47 p.m. and 10 seconds, while the aircraft was at 110 feet above ground, there was a sudden and very brief push full forward on the control column before returning to neutral. The captain briefly lost visual contact with the runway. We'll talk about why that is later. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure you bring that up. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's going to make you mad later. At 11.47 p.m. and 13 seconds, the ground proximity warning system alerted sink rate when the airplane was just 80 to 54 feet above ground. Now, basically over the threshold. The first officer then called out, quote, thousand down, end quote, simultaneous to a repeat of sink rate from the GPWS. Which means that they are descending at a thousand feet per minute. Yes, this means that they are descending at a thousand feet per minute. This was the first officer trying to alert the captain to their very high rate of descent. This was followed immediately by a call out by the GPWS of 10, at which time the captain brought the throttles to idle. This was 10 feet above the ground. That's nice. The aircraft touched down on the runway in a wings level attitude, impacting hard. How hard? 3.11 G's hard. Oh, ow. That's not small. The most that you will experience in any even heavy landing in a passenger aircraft usually is like 1.3, 1.4 maybe. In a really bad scenario, maybe one and a half. But I don't usually think they'd ever experience two. That's pretty heavy. This was three. This was 3.11. Yep, this was pretty heavy. They then bounced back into the air with the nose up and in a slight roll to the right. The thrust suddenly advanced on both engines. A control input of full nose down, however, was applied until a second touchdown occurred, which was a rapid nose down, and the second touchdown being just 1.9 seconds after the first. The control column then returned to the neutral position after the second touchdown. At that time, the electrical power of the aircraft, and in the cabin in particular, failed due to the heavy impacts. The emergency lighting activated in the cabin successfully, my dad. Good, good, good. Yep. The first officer called out, auto brake indicating that the auto brake did not activate. This is literally what applies the brakes to the wheels automatically at a certain rate. Yeah, but you just said that electric... Yes. Yeah, turned off, so... Yes. Correct. Correct. There's also more to this. The thrust reverses and the spoilers also did not deploy. The captain applied full braking manually. Good. The aircraft traveled 1,000 meters down the runway, which isn't a huge amount. But by that point, they should have been able to stop, in theory, before veering to the right and off of the runway at a high rate of speed. The aircraft crossed some grass, struck an embankment hard, which sent them up and over before impacting on the other side, coming to rest with a fuselage broken in two entirely large pieces, laying in a field outside of the airport boundary, about 10 meters below the runway surface. The captain was unconscious when the aircraft came to arrest, but regained consciousness shortly thereafter. He hit his head. It's bleeding. Yep. A lot. Yep. Head wounds always bleed a lot, though. Yeah, it's bad. The first officer's seat was displaced due to the deformation of the floor, but he was conscious and was actually okay. He began the evacuation actions, the memory items, in the cockpit, but he had trouble doing all the switches and everything in the dark because nothing was on. The passenger evacuation was initiated in the three separate cabins of the aircraft, three separate areas. So while this was in two pieces, 
I assume this is because they might have had three classes of travel. I thought there were two breaks in the fuselage. I thought so, too. And in the picture that I've seen, there is one picture, it looked like it was in three. But it said it broke in two. In the synopsis, it said it broke into three pieces. That's what I thought. Okay, so... So the airplane broke into three pieces. And it's probably the same pieces we always hear about, right? It is. It's the front, the, front, the, wings, the fuselage, the, and the tail. Yeah, the, yep, yeah, exactly. The yeah. nose, the fuselage, the tail. Yeah. It's usually how that goes. Yep, it's just broken in three pieces, just like always. The passengers quickly went toward the exits, any available exit. The cabin crew followed the last passenger off of the aircraft. All of that said, an emergency notification was not activated in the tower... But a call was made by the tower to the airport emergency services, and the services scoured the runway looking for the aircraft without success before expanding their search beyond the runway, finally locating it 18 minutes after the accident. But they still couldn't reach the aircraft for another 14 minutes because of where it was. Wait, so, okay, ATC had them in sight yes. Yes. with the landing lights, right? Watched the whole thing. So why did the emergency crew have so much problem finding them? I will get into that. There's okay. a f yeah, few pieces going on. I'm sure it's probably uh, just I think, bad communication. I think I list like seven different reasons it took so long. This is something that's definitely going to make you mad too. This is not anything we've ever covered before. Oh, okay. Nope. By that time, all of the passengers and crew had evacuated the aircraft. In that time, one of the passengers had managed to exit the aircraft and walk to the airport terminal to get help. Before the emergency services even showed up. <laughs> that's not great. No, that's not good. That's like no, really bad. No, that's not anything you ever want. <laughs> that means, there's, there's reasons. That means you f***ed up. My big dude. time, big time. Someone it's, didn't do their job right. You are correct. L listen when I say it's not entirely their fault. No, it's not. I'm sure terrain also. around the area is probably part of no, it. No, there's something even bigger than that. There is. It took one hour and ten minutes for all passengers and crew to be removed from the aircraft in the surrounding area and bussed to the terminal or taken to the hospital. That is an excessively long time for an emergency situation. I feel like that would have been, it would have been better if just all the people just walked to the terminal like Pretty that much. one guy did. Pretty much. <laughs> Wouldn't have taken so long. Pretty much. But not all of them could, so. Well, there's that. But the aircraft was, of course, severely damaged well beyond repair. No, Obviously. really? It's in chunks, so it's not flyable. Out of the 245 people on board, eight crew and 193 passengers had no injuries at all, which is miraculous. One crew and 40 passengers had minor injuries. Two passengers had serious injuries. Then there was one. One passenger was taken to the hospital with minor injuries and was released the next day. Unfortunately, they had not noticed anything about his internal injuries. Oh, I was going to say he probably had internal bleeding somewhere. Then he yeah, they passed away five days after. Yeah. They did have the an underlying medical condition. Yeah. That contributed to that. So it wasn't like 100% the crash. But like if you have like a clotting disorder mm -hmm. and yep. you have internal bleeding after something like this and they don't catch it. It's bad. It's you, you're going to die. So there's, they died. Yeah. So there's nothing you can do about that. If yeah. I find it very strange they didn't check him for internal injuries. I should say because I don't know if it was a him for internal injuries. Because I thought this strange as well. Even if you're in it. So if you picture yourself in a seat, right? If you have a really huge force, even with the seatbelt on, usually where the seatbelt is, something there could get broken or hurt. And then if you're bracing properly, 
even then you can hit your head on your hands or hit your head I mean any on anything. And I didn't read too deeply into how exactly they died. I just know that they had an underlying medical condition. Yeah. And I I mean medical privacy they might not have even put it in the report. So right. in any case, they died. Yep. I'm just saying it just doesn't surprise me. But it's also, to me, it's kind of surprising that only one person died. Yes, considering the airplane... how hard it hit the ground. Holy crap. We'll talk a lot more about just how hard they hit, because it was hard. So, I know know we're going to talk about this, right? But they really should have just gone to Barcelona. They shouldn't have even tried to land again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) They really just should have gone to their alternate rather than trying to turn around and land again. The one thing that can be said is... You, me, everybody, including the crew, after the fact, agrees with you. 2020 hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, though, like, if you think about it in the terms of, like, hyperfixation, right? Right. You're already at that airport. So you're like, let's just turn around and land. Like, we're already here. Why fly to another airport? We're already here. The conditions definitely called for actually a pretty easy landing on runway to zero. Other than that it's wet. Yeah, I'm but still even that- very confused with some of the things that happened. Okay, oh. good, because uh, uh, there's so. reasons. Uh, Nick did not fill in a very key detail. Yes. So this investigation was performed by the Comisión de Investigación de Accidentes e Incidentes de Aviación Civil, otherwise known as the CIAIAC. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've covered a report by <laughs> them before. I am sure we have. Every time we read it, I'm like. It's so extra. Why does it have to be so extra? With the assistance of the AAIB of the UK and the NTSB of the US as the countries of operator and manufacturer, respectively. Both black boxes were recovered, undamaged, and were sent to the AAIB for replay. Fortunately for them, the tail was intact, so... Correct. And there was no fire. Correct. Correct. Partially because they didn't have much fuel left. (laughs) That, yeah. It's also raining. Yeah. The wings also didn't fracture. Yeah. I mean, they were not in great shape. They were bent, but... They didn't fall off. Also found, albeit damaged, was the quick access recorder, or QAR, which we don't talk about a whole lot. It's in the uh, nose. This recorder didn't prove to be helpful, as the data found was from August 7th to the 8th. Oh, yeah. Nope. Not <laughs> at this all This happened helpful. in the middle of September. Yeah, not at all helpful in not the middle helpful of September. Not helpful at all. Also, the entire cassette was, like, filled with mud. It's like, good luck with that. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about where they landed... In mud. It's so great. Which turns out to be a problem later. In the first part of their investigation, investigators took time to surmise some of what happened with some gaps filled in by the recorders and interviews and used that to determine a more accurate question of cause. Before even leaving Cardiff, the flight crew knew that there would be thunderstorms around Girona, and there were. They carried out one go-around, and the captain weighed whether or not, (laughs) to divert to Barcelona. When the runway was changed to be runway 20 with the ILS, he determined that he would give it another go, and if they had to do a missed approach once more, they would already be pointed in the direction of Barcelona. On the second approach, the captain reported that he did not see approach lights, or the Pappy lights, and the investigators interviewed the air traffic controller, who was 100% sure that she changed them over when the runway changed. We'll get to that later. The captain continued once he had some kind of visual reference before decision height, but once the auto throttle and autopilot were disconnected, the aircraft diverged from the normal flight path and began flying too high, which the captain tried to correct with nose-down inputs. And then the few lights that he did see vanished. Yes. The captain? Yes. The runway lights vanished. Yes, they did. 
How? All of the lights vanished in front of him. Upon further investigation, it was found that the ground electrical supply was interrupted, probably by storm damage, and the runway and environmental lighting lost power. That's what I was going to say next. Did it just lose power because of the storm? Right before touchdown. That sucks. Yep. The ground proximity warning system began calling out sink rate and suppressed the normal height above ground callouts. So the crew didn't know how high they were, so they didn't flare. Flaring is when you lift the nose just before touchdown, so you float a little, only touch the main landing gear, and you soften the blow. By not flaring, it was a uh, hard landing. (laughs) (laughs) Very. Because they landed flat. So all three gear at once. And then they bounced. Control inputs, which were possibly inadvertent because they just slammed into the ground, pushed the nose down. So I imagine, like, the flight crew getting thrown forward into their control column. Probably accurate. So the nose gear touched down again, less than two seconds after the first touchdown. At this point, the nose landing gear supports collapsed. That doesn't surprise me. But they collapsed upward. Normally, you would just be able to slow down and stop on the runway when that happens. But for whatever reason, the subsequent damage to aircraft systems caused the plane to accelerate. What it did is it pushed on the thrust lever cables from underneath, which caused the airplane to believe that they wanted more thrust. They didn't. They didn't. So it was uncommanded thrust all of a sudden. I hate all of this. Yep. And it interrupted electricity to spoilers, the brakes, the thrust reversers. So the question that investigators came to was thus. Why didn't the crew go around when the lights went out? They don't have any fuel left. So they could have still diverted to Barcelona. Even after touching down Because it's in the same direction. Yeah, they still had just enough fuel, basically, they can make it to Barcelona. Within the company policies, they were technically below what they needed, but they had enough. So why did they keep going when the lights went out? The first topic of discussion was the crew's qualifications and performance. They were in good standing with licenses, ratings, medical certificates, and they operated using standard operating procedures and had good intercockpit communication as well as comms with the cabin crew. They reacted well during the evacuation despite the limited light, roll attitude of the aircraft, the weather, and the failure of the intercom, you know, because um, the entirety of the fuselage is split. Yeah. Yep. The one thing that investigators found interesting in their training history was a lack of specific training in deciding on and initiating a missed approach below minimum decision height or minimum descent altitude. But didn't they do that before MDA, just before this? But they did it, like, just after MDA. Oh, okay. This is well after MDA, MDH. This is over the threshold. But this is really interesting to me because that's like pretty basic training content. You can go around at any point before thrust reversers are applied. As long as you have enough fuel. Yes. Yes. So why weren't they trained on that? That's sticking point one. Investigators reviewed the flight planning process. There were three alternates. Barcelona, Reus, did I pronounce that correctly? Sure. No idea. And Toulouse, you know, where uh, Airbus is made. Yep. The last one being the only one that was free from storms. The fuel was calculated using the nearest alternate of Barcelona, and the crew added 780 kilograms of fuel to allow for 15 minutes of holding. That's all fine and well per SOP, but here's the weird thing. Regulations when considering planning minimums only considered visibility and cloud-based conditions and didn't include storm presence, 
which is made even weirder by the fact that Britannia's operations manual said to avoid carrying out approaches and landings in storms. So one thing is telling you, don't consider the storms when planning. The other is saying, don't go if they're storms. So my question is, if the standard operating procedure at the airport was don't land here when there's a storm. No, that was the airline's procedure. Oh, then Something why- that Air France 358 should have had, but didn't. That was after this. They said, like, don't even try to approach if there's a storm. But normal regulations, I'm assuming in the UK, maybe Spain, I don't know, they didn't really specify, but regulations did not consider a storm. They only said, is the visibility within minimums? Is the cloud base within minimums? Didn't account for a wet slash lightning. There's a, there's a kind of a reason why there's some confusion here. And I bet it's exactly why your face looks like that. <laughs> yeah, because here's the deal, right? I mean, we talked about storms actually recently several times, right? Mm-hmm. And every time we talk about weather, there's always a minimum, usually, at every airport that you can land at, right? right. And as long as you're within your company minimums, you're fine. Right. My problem is, why not follow their company procedure if that's what they're supposed to be trained on the normal regulations there is a recommendation on it later but i'll kind of hit on it now it's because at the time particularly in europe there was no standardized way of classifying storms and because of that basically there was no consensus on what's too much Mm. this should have been obviously maybe too much the reality is they went through some heavy turbulence but they actually got down and they were well within minimums when they got to the airport and the like, winds weren't bad either. Well, and they could see the runway until the lighting stopped working. It's yeah. not like some of the other times we've covered it where legit, they can't see the runway. And then they try to land anyway. This mm-hmm. is another quite literally perfect storm. Let's keep going. <laughs> Next, investigators analyzed the first approach, which was a non-precision VOR DME approach to runway 02, since the wind was from 360 at 10 knots. Can we also discuss that ATC let them do that even though visuals weren't great? Like, having a, a non-precision approach in a storm, not great. It was above minimums. And it is still up to the pilots. It's yes, I mean, ATC, ATC did several times suggest, hey. Maybe don't do that. We've got an alternate plan for you to go to what? two zero. Yeah, like, why don't you just do the ILS approach and take all that off of your plate? Yes, it's their twice, call. twice before they attempted the approach to zero two, air traffic control offered them the ILS. Twice. But that's not the worst of this first approach. No. So the captain took over as pilot flying because it is a fairly complex approach. And this was a company procedure. He used the speed brakes during descent to lose height faster without speeding up. And here's where the investigators poo-poo the operator's standard operating procedures. SOP was to have the commander keep his hand on the speed brake lever while speed brakes are extended. But that's not really feasible when that's the same hand he's supposed to be using for everything? Mm-hmm. Yep. Other than his control column? So he lost awareness of the speed brakes and left them extended for 10 minutes. I was gonna yep. say the speed brakes were left on, huh? <laughs> yep. You might have noticed that I said he extended them, but then I never talked about when he actually put them down. He did put them down when the landing flaps were extended. Because of this, the engines were sometimes above idle during approach, making their landing speed unstable as evidenced by the first officer having to have multiple speed monitoring calls. This also increased fuel consumption by a lot, making it so that the minimum diversion fuel was reached during the second approach. Then the captain's approach chart fell off of his control column. 
So he continued the approach with the first officer's help, which increased the cockpit workload. The wind changed during the approach, and now they had a tailwind. So the descent profile was crap, and they were too high, so they called for a go-around. The crew asked for a weather update for the area north of the airport, and the controller did not have this information. She didn't have any actual data on the development of the storm, information that would have been great for the crew and tower to have. So investigators have a recommendation about that, and I will talk a little bit more about it later. Eventually, the tower did give a weather update, and the new information had the captain deciding to do an ILS approach to runway 20, which is much easier than a non-precision approach. The captain called for auto brake level 4, the second highest level, which was good. Good choice. Yes, it is a good choice. Given the wet runway and the standing water that they didn't know about. There were a lot of things that they really actually did right. As well as given the downslope of the runway, which I will talk about later also. He then said, lights in sight when they were 500 above and contact 15 seconds later, 10 seconds before minimum decision height, at which point the captain disconnected the autopilot and auto throttle. He said, lights in sight. You remember what he said in his interview later? That he didn't see approach lights or pappy lights. Well, maybe he was talking about the runway lights? Investigators think that he probably meant the approach and pappy lights and just didn't remember that in his interview later. You know, trauma sucks. It's really hard to get like an accurate, especially depiction. for somebody who smashed their head on the dashboard and went unconscious. Yeah, that's shortly not after this happened. Well, did they ask the first officer about it because he was conscious the entire time? I did not find anything about it. What I know about it is that he was monitoring the instruments, which so he, he probably wasn't even looking. He up. was closely doing because he was making pertinent callouts the whole time about trying to. Make sure the pilot was, the captain was on. Which is good cockpit resource management, crew resource management. It was, actually. He was monitoring things well. Once the autopilot was disconnected, the FDR showed oscillations in the altitude, and it was determined that this was not caused by turbulence or wind shear. This was probably when the captain was pushing down on the nose to correct. When the auto throttle was disconnected, a power correction was made to 1.51 engine power ratio, or EPR, which is higher than the normal approach EPR of 1.2, which caused the aircraft to fly above the glide path, and the captain pushed on the controls to correct the descent. Then the captain reported a sudden blackness. And his instrument said he was too high, so he pushed down to correct. And the FDR recorded an almost full nose-down elevator input. In this situation of very unforeseen events, the captain created a mental block in his mind and continued to land. Quote, Perhaps if the commander had specific training to make a go-around below the decision height, he could have reacted more quickly and therefore it is considered appropriate to issue a related safety recommendation. End quote. Yep. I kind of understand him continuing to land because they were so close to the runway. They're literally like at the very last second. Yeah. Less than 100 feet above. Which, and as we just said not too long ago, you can always go around, right? Like when the lights went off, like he couldn't see the runway lights, they should have gone around. And this diverted. Right. Well, and this happened so fast because also we'll talk about this, but the lights were not off for very long. But. This happened so fast that he probably didn't have the time to really process what was happening. Yeah. He just thought that maybe the runway was suddenly out of sight. Yeah. It didn't occur to him that the lights went out. I just find it really interesting. He kept pushing the control column down so far, like pushing he forward, thought pushing he forward, was pushing too high. forward. Right. He thought he was too high all the way up until the GPWS told him that he wasn't. Speaking of, it further didn't help that the automatic height callouts of 50... 40, 30, and 20 feet were not issued, 
because they were covered up by the ground proximity warning system. Saying sink rate. Yep. Meaning that the captain couldn't hear how fast he was descending. And he had no visual reference either. These callouts are normally how flight crews time their flare, and not hearing them probably meant he thought he was higher than he was. The height of 10 feet was called out. (laughs) That's not enough time to flare, though. Nope. You can't do diddly squat. That's when he pulled idle, but he didn't have any time to flare at that point. And they just hit hard. Normally, you would start reducing power at 20 with idle coming at 10. So I think something I think I read something about that starting at 30 feet per their SOP, but I could be. It might be. It might be in their SOP to be at 30. So there's the flight crew's role. Investigators also looked into the control tower's role in this. After the flight's first approach, the controller had a phone conversation with Barcelona's area control center for a minute and a half. And then with Girona's meteorological operation, and these conversations happened during the runway change when the controller should have changed the approach and Pappy lights to runway 20. This is when investigators discovered that there weren't any actual standard procedures or checklists for a runway change. Right. Because, you know, why would a tower need that? Maybe because they have to do runway changes. There's evidence both ways as to if she turned them on or didn't. But the point of the matter is there needs to be a procedure. There needs to be a checklist for the tower during a runway change. Yes. There's no way to tell if they were on or if they weren't. Right. Just let it lie. Next, the airport itself. Namely, the lighting system, which went out during the landing as well as during search and rescue. Numerous times. Why did it go out? Quote, the reason for the interruptions is unknown. Great. Fantastic. Although it appears likely that there was a direct relationship with the storm activity and the heavy rain, end quote. It was found through testing that the backup system would kick in in 11 seconds, which is within the ICAO standard for 15 seconds. Exactly. Using this calculation, it was determined that four seconds after landing, the lights probably came back on. Yep. Well, that's not really all that helpful. No, it's not. The lighting being out not only was a causal factor to the accident itself, but it also added issues to the beginning of the emergency plan. The control tower could not maintain visual contact with the aircraft on the runway, both due to the lack of runway lighting, as well as the fact that the nose gear failure caused the lights to go out on the aircraft. So seeing it was a... Impossible? Yeah. Yep. In the dark, at night, in a storm, in the rain. So she didn't know where it went. Right. She just knew that suddenly it wasn't there anymore and wasn't talking to her. Can you imagine being her? Lights out. Back on. No play. It's like a magic trick. Scary. Scary magic trick. Very not great magic trick. (laughs) Scary magic trick. You're an ATC controller that just lost an airplane. That's a worse nightmare as an ATC. And they were landing when the last time you saw them. Yeah, this would be a horrifying, horrifying thing as an air traffic controller. So she tried to get a hold of them on the radio. That didn't happen. You know, they don't have power either. Yeah. And then when the controller pressed the button to activate the emergency plan... The power was out to that system, so the button didn't do anything. Oh my gosh. Right. There's no backup generator somewhere. See, most airports do have that. And this one had some form of one because it does pick up the power eventually. It it takes time to kick in, though. That stuff's not immediate. Yep. So she fixed this by confirming the alarm activation to the airport fire service via dedicated phone line. Phones were in. Phones were not out. It did take emergency crews 18 minutes to find the accident. But investigators don't blame them for this, given that, one, the tower controller wasn't even 100% sure there was an accident. She just couldn't reach the plane. Two, she only had a general idea of where the plane would 
maybe have gone, which wasn't right because it veered to the right of the runway. Three, the lights kept going out, obscuring the accident in darkness, especially since nothing caught on fire, you know, which would have been a source of illumination. Four, the accident was eight to nine meters below runway level, obscuring it further. Five, the vehicles got stuck in the mud. Six, they had to go around to reach the perimeter road. They couldn't reach it the way they were trying to go. And seven, the accident was out of airport grounds. Yep. It's just, it's not great. There's a whole just conglomeration of things right there that just went so poorly. Perfect storm. Yep. Another factor of the airport was the runway. I mentioned earlier that there was a downslope. The average downslope of the runway was 0.84%, with the first third being 0.46%, the second third being 1%, and the final section being 1.25%. Per ICAO Annex 14, the first and last quarters of the runway should not exceed 0.8% downslope, so the runway was in violation of that. There were other things regarding the terrain surrounding the runway, but I'm assuming Nick will get into that in the recommendations. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. Was the runway grooved? I don't recall. They didn't talk about it. Okay. There's standing water, so I'm inclined to say no. Right. But that was not a factor. It actually wasn't. The wet runway had nothing to do with this. I know. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. I tried looking. I can try again. Going back to something I said earlier, the nose landing gear failure. In normal circumstances, the plane should have been able to stop on the runway, maybe a little long. In this instance, several failures happened subsequently. The spoilers, the thrust reversers, and the wheel brake anti-skid system were all disabled. That sucks, but isn't critical. Nah, the critical part was there was an uncommanded forward thrust caused by interference from the power plant control cables. Quote, converting the consequences of the accident from relatively benign to potentially catastrophic. End quote. This was not the first time this happened to a 757. An accident of aircraft registration, Papa Hotel Tango Kilo Charlie, had the aircraft travel three kilometers along a runway after landing and then 100 meters in soft ground. This was due to an abnormally high energy absorption by the wheel brakes, which then caught fire. At least one engine then raised to above idle. An extensive damage in electrical power supply loss also happened in that case, similar to this case. There's a recommendation to the FAA about the design of the 757. Yes, yes, there is. And that is all I have. Well, I hope you like this really long first half of the episode. It's a chonk. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get to probably the long second half of the episode. Relatively, Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We back. We're back. Welcome. Did you miss us? Sure. I mean, we were probably just talking. Yeah. (laughs) The patrons are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let us do some findings and cause and this and recommendations. There's plenty. They found that the aircraft made an initial touchdown on the runway in the normal touchdown zone. I thought this was important because... They didn't land that early. Right. Here's the whole thing. They actually did... that late. Right. They actually did everything pretty well like they really were following crm pretty well in their procedures they were even following the charts pretty well 
I wouldn't say this was necessarily a breakdown in the crew. There was a couple things that happened, but it can't really be entirely laid blame on them. Everything until the lights went out yeah. was pretty okay. Right, which is why they managed to land in the touchdown zone, albeit very hard, but they did. They found that there was a high descent rate at initial touchdown, and the aircraft bounced. They found that the ground spoilers were armed, but did not probably deploy at initial touchdown, as the aircraft air-ground logic was not activated before the aircraft bounced. Basically, the computer that's supposed to deploy the spoilers in that short bounce time couldn't deploy the spoilers, and then because by the time they would have deployed the next time... The nose gear collapsed. The, elect the electronics failed. Everything failed because of the nose gear collapse. There's probably some kind of code written in there, like, if ground for more than, like, half a second deploy spoilers, but they never reached whatever that condition was. That Well, and it takes time. I mean, everything takes time because it has to move hydraulic systems. That, too. So, the very brief boom and back into the air... Before, boom, again, didn't have any time to think about it. They found that the sustained and quick forward movement of the control column after the initial touchdown caused the aircraft to develop an excessive nose-down pitch rate. This is what actually collapsed the gear. This is one thing where I can say it was probably a mistake. I don't think they would have intended to just push the nose full forward. I seriously think, especially given that the captain hit his head. Yeah. That he, they probably they said, fell on the control column. What they said is that was the moment that he fell unconscious. That second impact. So when he fell forward, he's probably already falling forward toward that, and then it impacted and hit him hard. And he's probably pushing on the control column with yes. his body. To be honest, it's pretty miraculous that he survived, because a lot of pilots die from hitting their head on control columns and panels and things. They are designed much better these days to help keep you from doing that. But still, it was a thing that happened. And in that moment, though, because the control column went forward, not only did they bounce, but they the airplane went then nose first back toward the ground in the pitch down. It immediately just brought the nose straight down into the ground first before the main landing gear. They found that during a second touchdown, a high nose down pitch rate contact of the nose landing gear with the runway, overloaded the nose landing gear support structure and caused it to displace within the fuselage. So when we say that the landing gear collapsed, it didn't fully collapse yet. Like, it didn't go aircraft nose all the way to the ground. It shot the landing gear literally straight up. Yeah, it shoved the landing gear back into the... Into what was the avionics bay, and then it folded. <laughs> so this was all just a mess. Ow. Yeah, this is what caused everything to go haywire. Maybe we shouldn't have the avionics bay above the landing gear. In most airplanes, it's not right above the landing gear anymore. Just a thought. Even in the 757, it wasn't... I mean, the all of the avionics weren't, but... Enough were. A lot of the electronic stuff was. Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. They found that the damage resulting from the displacement of the nose landing gear support structure caused loss of virtually all aircraft electrical power, disabling spoiler and auto brake systems, and severely affecting the aircraft and engine control systems. They found that the interface with engine control cables by the displaced nose landing gear support structure caused significant uncommanded forward thrust increase on one or both engines after touchdown. This, to me, should be an enormous red flag for Boeing, since this also happened multiple times. Yeah. It's like, okay, so a hard touchdown could literally just cause the airplane to accelerate? Mm, not so good. 
Due to manual things, too. It's just the way the airplane was designed. Like he said, they found that previous 757 accidents had occurred in which the overload displacement of the nose landing gear support structure had caused loss of virtually all aircraft electrical systems. And in at least one case, probable uncommanded forward thrust increase, no relevant modification of the nose landing gear, its support structure, or aircraft systems had been made as a result of those accidents. Seems like they should have been. Yeah. They found that the aircraft cabin and furnishings generally performed well during the ground impacts, but the dislodgement of some cabin equipment appeared unwarranted. So, unlike some incidents we've had where the baggage compartments above their heads just fell. Yeah. Or the seats came off. For the most part, that didn't happen. Good. But some did. Well. Mostly good. They found that the commander or the captain was rendered unconscious during the ground run when his head struck the unpadded frame of the flight deck windshield. Are they suggesting it should be padded? I would think so. I think that's what they're trying to say, some way, shape, or form. Are, are they? Prevent- are, are they now, I guess, is my question? Yeah, uh, well... As much as they can be. Yeah, basically. Uh, if you consider that almost every flight crew would hit their head and die, mm-hmm. it's probably a good idea to pad something it, Yeah, it's, to yes. keep that from happening. That, and... The thing that kind of struck me is I don't know if he was wearing his shoulder harness. I was, he was. just about was to he? ask yes. that. Okay. Because in most cases, in most airplanes, the shoulder harness is we'll keep you what from keep you that. from doing yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, what uh, keep uh, you uh, from. Uh, uh, hold on. I, I read it. I know I did. I want to confirm, though, before I just start blabbing my mouth. Quote, the pilots were apparently wearing locked shoulder harnesses and the injury appeared unreasonable in a situation where the flight deck had survived virtually intact and flight crew survival was not otherwise threatened. Apart from the direct effects of the injury, the captain's resulting temporary disablement at a potentially critical point could have adversely affected aircraft shutdown and evacuation operations. Dot, dot, dot. It is therefore recommended that the FAA require the Boeing 757 aircraft manufacturer to take measures aimed at improving the protection of flight crew members subject to inertial loading while restrained by their harness against impact with flight deck components with their shoulder harness selected to either lock or manual, end quote. Okay. I knew I read it. I'm not crazy. Yep. I feel like it's still weird, though, that he hit his head so hard if he's in his shoulder harness. They think it's weird, too. Basically, yeah. Unless he was ridiculously tall. Also, 3.11 Gs. A lot can happen in 3.11 Gs. <laughs> Moving on to the flight crew. They found that the crew was not able to obtain in-flight meteorological information on thunderstorm activity. While they were told there were thunderstorms, they weren't told anything else about them. That's basically it. They found that the crew members were aware of the general weather conditions of thunderstorms and heavy rain in the vicinity of the destination airport before commencing their approach. We already knew long before this that they knew thunderstorms would be present. But again, they really didn't know about the severity. They didn't know anything about what they were going to be flying into. They didn't have any kind of like pyreps or anything to go off of. Like, there was nothing. And before you ask, yes, they did have weather radar on board. However, it was very difficult to use because of the surrounding terrain. Yep. Which is why he actually turned it off when they got down toward their final approach. Because it wasn't useful anymore. Didn't serve any purpose. It was just in the way. They found that there was no significant wind shear affecting the aircraft during the final approach. When I started reading about this one, I I mean, I already knew what was going to happen. But in my mind, I was like, wow, everything that just happened, if you didn't know, like if you were in the captain's seat, 
it almost seemed like a wind shear event. Yeah, it almost seemed like it would have been like an updraft or something. There was almost enough there to indicate, like, all of a sudden, they had a really high sink rate. The airport was out of sight. Even though he was pushing the nose down, this was happening, that was happening. There were so many things happening all of a sudden. And he knew that he was in a thunderstorm. They'd been going through turbulence. There's so many things that just kind of add up in your mind where you'd think, mm, maybe this was wind shear. But it wasn't. It's pretty much everything but wind shear. They found that during final approach, the flight path became vertically destabilized below the decision height. So they were already well below their decision when all of a sudden the airplane was no longer on the glide slope. Mm -hmm. And that is the critical thing that they weren't trained on. They found that there was no record, nor was there required to be, that the crew members had received specific training in flight simulator in initiating a go-around below decision height. They found that the absence of a flare before touchdown probably resulted from the effects of shock upon the commander at the runway lights extinguishing very shortly before touchdown, visual illusion after they had gone out, and or the loss of the usual automatic height callouts. They found that the fuel quantity remaining when the aircraft touched down was probably below that required by the operator's policy for a go-around and diversion, although it complied with the exceptions contained in such policy. So, even if they had been able to go around and make it to Barcelona, they still couldn't have really been pinned with an issue for breaking policy because this counted, an as, exception. An, this counted as an exception. There was enough there to count as the exception. Probably because they were pointing in the direction of their diversion. For one, for two, extreme weather conditions existed, lights went out, there was enough there where it was like this was just not a safe landing. It just wasn't. They found that detailed information on the development and intensity of the storm was not provided to the aircraft's crew. The air traffic controller at the Girona Tower did not have information on the development of the storm. So like I said... They didn't really have a standardized way of determining what the storm was. And in particular, there at the airport, the air traffic controller didn't have that information anyway. Just didn't know how strong the storm was. Didn't know what it was going to be. Didn't know what the airplane was going to be flying through. They found that the commercial charts used for the final approach did not include information contained in the official Spanish aeronautical publication that the instrument landing system glide slope indication for the runway used should not be used below 260 feet. Above the ground. Huh? Exactly. I just said something really curious. And this one caught me a little off guard when I got to the findings, too. So the gist is below 260 feet. You're not supposed to use the ILS? It's considered unreliable in uh. Spanish charts and Spanish standards. Apparently, whatever ILS system they're using isn't reliable below 260 feet. That's not great. And that is apparently charted, or it's supposed to be. But, but wasn't? Wasn't. On the chart. What's the point of having an ILS then? If it's not going to take you right to the ground. Yeah. Well, it takes you below your minimum decision altitude. Oh, uh, yeah. So you should be able to see the runway. Exactly. But it's not supposed to be a visual approach. Correct. So he disconnected at 250 feet. So it didn't really matter. No. Because technically he would have been following the chart, essentially. This is a negligible amount of discrepancy. It's a finding, not a cause. This is a finding, not a cause. But... In that same regard, what they're trying to draw attention to is even if that's the case, it's still indicating per the flight director on his digital instruments. Yeah. The glide path. And it's not to say that that glide path wouldn't still lead directly to where they need to touch down, but they're saying it can be unreliable and that should be charted. Yes. And wasn't. That's bad. Yep. 
I think part of that, too, is they're saying, oh, if the electrical system goes down at the last second, you shouldn't be relying on it for final touchdown. Yeah. They found that the ground power supply failure probably resulted from heavy rain and storm activity near the airport. During tests carried out after the accident, it was noted that the automatic system restored emergency supplies to the airport within the 15 seconds of the ICAO specification. As I said. Yep. The airport was legal, regardless of the fact that the lights kept going out in a storm. Yeah. Which to me is sketch, but I also understand it's like, how do you protect such a system? I think that what should have been in place is not just a standard of how quickly the power can be restored, but how often over a certain period of time they're having electrical failures should also be a factor in whether or not the airport is legal. I wonder if that's a thing now. I agree. This I don't know, but... Does anyone from the ICAO listen? Hello? I think we probably would have heard from them by now. This is, this is your moment to shine. Sure. Because that would just make a lot of sense to me. I mean, if they had like, since it kept going out while we were doing the search and rescue too, it's like, if you have two electrical failures in a hour period, consider the airport to be closed for operations because mm. this is an unsafe condition. If it happens once and the power is restored within that 15 seconds. Okay. Okay. Turns out that was a really critical 15 seconds for this flight, but... But it would have helped with rescue ops. Yes. The odds of that happening during an approach, if it only happened once, is a lot lower than if it's a recurring thing during the same storm. As for the search and rescue, they found that all the passengers had been strapped in and remained conscious and did not sustain injuries sufficiently serious to prevent their rapid evacuation. Well, thank God. Everybody was able to get themselves off. Yeah, when you follow the rules, look what happened. Wow! Wow. The evacuation actually went pretty well. That wasn't the issue with the search and rescue and the evacuation issues. It It was was... successful, despite some concerns. Right. Yep. Yep. But good example of a good evacuation. Right. We've had a couple. Not as many as the bad ones we've had. Nope. And the final finding that I'm doing. They found that no aircraft lighting or emergency location signal was used to assist the emergency service in locating the main wreckage. This was interesting. First of all, the aircraft didn't have any lighting available. Uh, no. There was no electrical power. So that's out the window. But aircraft do generally have other forms of lighting or ways of getting attention. Flares, potentially? Potentially. Big giant flashlights, also potentially. They did say something about the flight crew not having time to retrieve all of the emergency equipment. And that's correct. So part of that is, yeah, they they probably didn't have time. But this is, I mean, this is also something that the cabin crew usually have at their stations is lights, things of that nature. So they're basically saying that maybe this is partially the fault of the evacuation, the way that it was, took place, that they didn't give any help or send any signal to the emergency services to find them. But I think there's so many things going on here that how could you i mean i just you can't really blame anybody in this instant they just went through a very traumatizing adrenaline rush event and they've managed to escape the airplane okay but also it's raining it's muddy it's dark there's a thunderstorm they can't see the emergency services for all they know the plane's about to catch fire right there's so many things here that it's just like well this is Unfortunately, just what it was. And that's it for the findings. The causes, as usual, verbatim from the report. 
It is considered that the most probable cause of the accident was the destabilization of the approach below decision height with loss of external visual references and automatic height callouts immediately before landing, resulting in touchdown with excessive descent rate and a nose-down attitude. The resulting displacement of the nose landing gear support structure caused disruption to aircraft systems that led to uncommanded forward thrust increase and other effects that severely aggravated the consequences of the initial event. Contributory factors were 1. Impairment of the runway visual environment as a result of darkness and torrential rain and the extinguishing of runway lights immediately before landing. 2. Suppression of some automatic height callouts by the GPWS sync rate audio caution. 3. The effect of shock or mental incapacitation on the pilot flying at the failure of the runway lights, which may have inhibited him from making a decision to go around. 4. The absence of specific flight crew training and flight simulators to initiate a go-around when below landing decision height. And 5. Insufficient evaluation of the weather conditions, particularly the movement and severity of the storm affecting the destination airport. Right. There go. The perfect storm. Again. Of all those things. Are we now the perfect storm podcast? Also that. So I'm doing all but one of the recommendations. Oh, good lord. There's not actually a whole lot of them. It is recommended that the FAA require that the Boeing 757 aircraft manufacturer to take measures aimed at preventing potentially hazardous effects on aircraft systems at the result of overload failure of the nose landing gear leg or its support structure. In particular, the measures should aim to prevent uncommanded forward thrust increase. That's a big red flag. They would have stopped on the runway if it weren't for that. There is a potential. Absolutely. Yes. But it was accelerating. And they didn't have any form of brakes except the manual brakes, which the captain applied. It is recommended that the aircraft manufacturer consider the possibility of modifying the procedure or the design of the alert system of the aircraft to minimize the possibility of the 757 flight crews inadvertently leaving the speed brake deployed with engine thrust above idle. Yeah, maybe just like a little like dinging or something to be like, yo, yo. Hey, your speed brake's still up. Much in the same way like you try to drive with your park brake on <laughs> yeah. and your car's like, hey, I'm not you saying, left it on. I'm not saying I've done that, but. I've definitely done that. I've done that. So that's one of those things that's like, yeah, it would be really helpful to have something like that. In a lot of cases, in a lot of aircraft, they have some form of visual indication in the cockpit, that yeah, like a light or something, yeah, 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 because leaving your hand on the speed brakes just isn't a viable option. I don't even know why that was in the SOPs. Right, in some aircraft, it's literally depicted in like a virtual visualization of all the control surfaces on the displays, or it's just displayed as speed brake on their displays. So that's one of those things that's like it's it's kind of there. It's already there. There's I can't imagine it would be hard to program that lighting. Like, just having a light warning in the cockpit saying, hey, this is on. You're correct. And so they've done some of that. Primarily what happens in a lot of newer, smarter aircraft, it's programmed where when the speed is at a certain rate, the aircraft is in a certain configuration, the spoilers automatically drop. Oh, well, look at that. Yep. Fancy. So that the speed brakes go away. It is recommended that the FAA require the 757 aircraft manufacturers to take measures aimed at improving the protection of flight crew members subjected to inertial loading while restrained by their harness against impact with flight deck components with the shoulder harness selected to either lock or manual. So we kind of already read that one yeah. earlier. Yeah. But you get the point. Save the flight crews. It is recommended to European Aviation Safety Agency. The EASA. EASA. 
that they evaluate the possibility of making mandatory the requirements to train flight crews in go-around maneuvers, even from below the decision height. Please and thank you. Yep. With the aim of reducing the response time when faced with unforeseen events, i.e. the lights are suddenly gone. That That's the most like unforeseen thing I've ever heard of. I mean, yeah, he probably wasn't looking for that. If you fly in GA, this isn't entirely unheard of, actually, because you might be approaching a small airport. Where, where the you lights have are, to turn on the you lights. You have to turn on the lights. Maybe somebody else turned them on ahead of you, and you didn't do anything to, like, keep them on. I've had that happen, flying with Brendan. Yeah. All of a sudden, the lights just go out ahead of you. Hmm, yes. That's a little scary. I mean, they're easy to turn back on, but, like... Absolutely. It, this is not the kind of airport where you got to do that. No. Nor was that the case here. I mean, they just... It was just went out. The electrical power just went out. So, therefore, you should always be able to go around. Go around. Or divert. Right. It is recommended that the aircraft operator should review its flight planning and clearance procedures in order to take into consideration probable meteorological conditions at the destination and alternate airports, including thunderstorms. Yeah, so not only did the flight crew decide, it's probably okay, dispatch also decided. It's probably okay. Which, mm, that's a checks and balances system for a reason. Yep. Someone, somewhere should have said no. There's a lot of things there that they just shouldn't, they shouldn't have proceeded with this. It is recommended that the Girona Airport operator study the possibility of modifying the physical characteristics of the runway strip to make them compliant with the leveling and slope recommended in the ICEO Annex 14. This airport had an exceedingly heavy slope for a runway. Which I'm I talked gonna say, about. Yeah, I'm not going to say that it was a lot, a lot, but it was enough. For it, it was like, outside of standard. It was outside of standards, and when they were in the dark, in the rain, going down that hill, accelerating, not good. It didn't help things. It didn't cause things, but it didn't help It did things. not help things. It is recommended that the AENA should evaluate the possibility of increasing the training and available means to improve the search of crash aircraft and to reduce the time to locate and actuate on the wreckage in adverse meteorological and reduced visibility conditions. Basically just getting emergency services to respond quicker and find accidents quicker. There should be training into locating accidents in bad conditions, in, you know, off-airport property, things like that. Who the heck is AENA? I'm assuming whatever their emergency services are there. Their airport emergency something something. It's probably Spanish. It just says the airport's operator. So whoever owns and runs the airport. Right. So kind of like airport authority? Sure. Sort of. Hard to say. The, the airport. They're saying yep. the airport. Yep. It is recommended that the EAENA should establish standardized control tower procedures that include checklists to prevent and detect errors of execution and omission in the control tasks, and also to increase the training of air traffic controllers to determine what meteorological information must be provided to the flight crews. Telling the flight crews how bad a storm is, but they have to be trained on it. They have to be trained to evaluate storms. They have to have the equipment to do it, too. But also... They're talking about how these air traffic controllers need to have checklists in the events of abnormal conditions, as well as in an accident. Make sure you push the button to alert emergency services, because emergency services were alerted by phone, and then it was kind of like telephoned along, tell everybody to dispatch, rather than an alarm sounding in all of the emergency services telling them they need to be dispatched. Well, it's not like they didn't try doing that. Right. The electrical power was out. The electrical power was out. And I get that. So there needs to be some kind of backup system. And they, I mean, they made it work, but it is still. At least they were alerted. Yes, I if, agree. 
backing up a little bit, I mm-hmm. think it's interesting that the air traffic controllers. Mm-hmm. So here in the United States, they're all government. They're all employed by the FAA. Yep. That's not the case here. Mm-mm. They were employed by the airport. Right. In a lot interesting. Of, there's been this debate back and forth between a lot of countries, and I won't go too deep into this, but about what the right answer is for this, if it should be government or if it should be the airport. In a lot of cases, it's up to the airport and they have to follow government regulations. But in the United States, we're one of the few countries, but one of the biggest ones where we have to operate with them actually being hired by the FAA. Interesting. They are government employees. So that's why they're always called the FAA tower everywhere Mm -hmm. in the United States. And when you talk to the FAA, you're talking to the tower, usually. But yeah, in a lot of other countries, it's the airport that operates it. And there's been some debate about changing that here, leaving it up to the airport or making, allowing privatized companies to come in and operate it. You can see how that might not be a uh, good thing. No. The word privatized just made me cringe. Anytime yeah. it comes to making money off of a uh, safety thing. No, no. I will disagree. I yeah. I don't like it. It's good the FAA runs it now because everyone has the same general idea of what is expected of them. Yes. Because the FAA is running it, and so they have regulations that you have to follow, and then everyone across the entire country has to follow the same regulations. Exactly. So then pilots don't get misinformation airport to airport. If you privatize it, it ends up differing so much that... I mean, one airport can have one set of call-outs, another airport can have another set of call-outs, and nothing is standard standard over the entire country, and then you have a bunch of pilots trying to figure out all the different call-outs from all these different places. Exactly. Well, and yes, so this is a problem in several places around the world, but also this is something that in, I don't remember if it was like 2017, 2018, there was a big bill going through in the U.S. to try to privatize the the towers, and thankfully it did not pass because there were enough politicians that did not believe this was a safe thing, and a lot of the United States and a lot of the aviation industry agrees with them. This is not the right way to go. Having to go through that transition could be really ugly. I can't imagine transitioning something like that right. on that scale. Would not be good. Finally... It is recommended that the National Meteorology Institute, in collaboration with the air traffic services, establish a standardized system to inform the flight crews on the evolution and intensity of storms, particularly regarding storms that could be hazard to the operation in the areas of initial climb and approach to aerodromes. Like I said, they didn't really have like a truly standardized way on this of classifying storms. And we do in the United States. Yes. Uh, Refer back to our microburst series, I believe is when I talked about it. Right. But there is a classification. I think it's mainly based on like wind speeds and stuff like that. I can't remember. It was years ago. Right. Wind speeds, wind directions. Um, There's there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that come into account for that. But that is one of the big factors here, too. If you ask me, is like they just didn't have that kind of information. They were like, okay, we know there's a storm, but we're just going to go with it. But a level what storm? Right. You know? Right. So and then just, when do you say, oh, that storm's too bad, that storm's too big, that storm, whatever. Once you have some kind of quantification of that, you can make those calls and say, this, you're allowed to fly in this and not in this. But right. in the absence of that, it's like up to you, I guess. Right. Right. Yep. Exactly. So that's really it. That's a lot. A lot. There was a lot in this incident. There was a lot of things that we've not talked about before, but a some lot of, that we had, some that we had for sure. 
I have not talked about runway lights just going out. Nope, that was a new one. That was... I definitely thought you were going to talk about it, and Mm -mm. we didn't discuss our plan for this episode. Mm -mm. I wanted that one to be left in the dark, if you will. Boo. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it was perfect. (laughs) So that was Botania Airlines Flight 266A. Thank you so much for listening. You're welcome for the long episode. The long episode to make up for the short one. From last week. This is still not our longest. Nope. Oh, no. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons. As always, you guys are amazing and awesome. And thank you for supporting us. And thank you for everyone for listening. Continue to do so. Remember to rate us on the app you're using to listen to us. It really helps other people see us. It also kind of helps us figure out if you like Like us. uh, Yeah, like the podcast or not. Yeah. Do you like me? (laughs) Please like me. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.